Uh, well, we pick up from where we last left off. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. <clears throat> and we'll be focusing on verses 15 through verse 22. But for the sake of context, we'll begin our time together starting in verse 11. So Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. Church, hear now the reading of God's most holy and inerrant word. We read, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Verse 15. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where there is a testament, or where a will is, there must also of necessity be the death of a testator, or the one who made the will. For a testament, or a will, is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people, according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, uh, scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Amen. This is God's word. Bow with me in a word of prayer. Our gracious and eternal Father, in a world that is ever so transient, always changing, full of created and temporary things. Lord, as your people and as your church, we rejoice in Christ and his unchanging word. It is to that word and to this word alone that we as your people look to as the very source of our strength and our comfort. Recognizing that whenever we oppose your word, we oppose you and Whenever we receive your word, we receive you. And so in this time that we have together, as we look to your word preached and your word received, we ask that by God the Spirit that we would embrace all that you would have to show and reveal to us this night. Not only for us to know, but ultimately to believe and do all things that you call us to do in faithfulness and obedience. Use this time, we pray, for our good and for the exaltation of your holy name. 
We ask these things in the one who is the Son, Christ Jesus. Amen. One of the great challenges of this day for any Christian, either preaching or hearing or sharing, rather, the gospel message stems from the major cultural shift that's occurred from the concern for biblical or universal morality to various popular conceptions of what people uh, people believe morality to be. Stated in another way, morality which is inherently objective, universally objective, has in our day become subjective. The definition and the standards believed to be thoroughly dependent upon the eye of the beholder picking and choosing what ideas will be included within their own moral system. Now some of the more common rules, and probably will sound familiar to you, is tolerance is right and exclusivity is wrong. Helping others is right and harming others is wrong. Free choice is right and restrictions to any being is wrong. And the list goes on and on and on, but the greatest harm that's perhaps emerged from all this cultural shifting and the reordering of what morality is takes form in one's understanding of sin. Today, not only has the word sin become widely unpopular and in many ways detested, but we also find as a result of all of this is that the need, the necessity for forgiveness has become to many outdated and to their own detriment unnecessary. Subjective moralism has been greatly used by the devil in our day to day to dull the senses of our generation on the dire need for forgiveness on what the Bible labels as sin. C.S. Lewis in his classic work, Mere Christianity, he writes this, Christianity tells people to repent and promises them forgiveness. It therefore has nothing to say to people who don't know that they've done anything to repent of and who don't feel that they need any forgiveness. It is only after you have realized that there is such a thing as real moral law or a universal law and a power behind the law and that you have broken the law and put yourself wrong with that power, namely God. It is after all this and not a moment sooner that Christianity begins to talk. In many ways, this is the very point that the writer of Hebrews is trying to get across. That you'll never understand your need for a high priest. That you'll never understand the necessity of a sacrifice and the need for for blood, for forgiveness, and your ultimate need for Christ unless you first recognize your fallen state. Unless you first recognize your sinful conscience, or in the words of the writer, unless you recognize that your conscience needs to be cleansed. This was and is the very purpose of the old covenant and the moral law. That old system was put into place by God with all of its barriers and rituals and sacrifice, not as a means to salvation, 
but as a means to drive you to the one who is the Savior. And that by recognizing that humanity has a deep and dark and severe sin issue. In other words, because of sin, we all have a great stain upon us. Not on the outside, not on our clothes, not on our skin, not on anything exterior. But we have a deep and dark stain upon our souls. That sin, as the great hymn goes, which had left upon each and every one of us a crimson stain. Stains upon the soul, as it were, that speaks to our conscience to remind us of our judgment. To remind us of our condemnation. But praise be to God that though sin had left a crimson stain, that Christ, but Christ, by His blood, Washed it white as snow. And beloved, this is the very message of Hebrews 9. And with all of that said, we, as I stated before, we press on in our study in this chapter. If you can, please look down with me again to verse 15. And let's read this verse again. Verse 15. And for this reason, Christ, Jesus, He is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death. For the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. The writer begins by addressing a question that would have most likely been resonating within the minds of the first century Jewish listeners reading this epistle, specifically regarding those who've been promised an eternal inheritance, and in this case, their fathers and forefathers in the faith regarding everyone who lived under the shedding of the blood of bulls and goats under that old system. Now they were probably probably thinking to themselves, okay, if our fathers and our forefathers, our grandparents were promised an inheritance, and now you just said in verses 11 through 14 that the blood of bulls and goats and heifers isn't going to cut it out for them, then how are we to consider all of this? How are we to think through all of what you just told us? How are those born underneath that old covenant, how are they going to get their inheritance? What's going to happen to those who are born before the crucifixion of Christ? Before, prior to the saving blood of Jesus? In other words, their question can more generally be summed up in this way. How... Do the called receive their inheritance? The writer writes, for this reason. What reason? Look back at verse 14. We read, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For this reason, in other words, because of the superiority and the power of the blood of Christ as we learned last week because of his blood Christ is the mediator how by means of death or some of your translations might say since a death has taken place what the writer's doing here is he's he's bridging the idea that Christ because he had offered himself up as the perfect and 
final sacrifice for sins. And because a death has taken place, for this very reason, it's through that death that the called are going to receive their inheritance. So what the writer's doing here in verse 15 is that he's setting the stage for us here. He's setting forth for us the basis and the purpose and the means of the mediation of the new covenant by which sins are forgiven. Now I want you to notice here that the writer's concern isn't necessarily on trying to resolve the question of how do all of our sins for all times get forgiven, though he will address that later at the end of this chapter. But the writer's chief concern here in this verse his focus in verse 15 is on dressing the, addressing the question of how do the sins of those born under the old covenant, or in his words, the transgressions that occurred under the first covenant, how can those sins be forgiven in light of what's just been said about the inadequacies of the Old Testament sacrifices? Because again, these Jewish Christians reading and hearing this letter, they're thinking to themselves, okay, if the old covenant was inadequate, then what's going to happen to my dad? If the old covenant and the sacrifices were inadequate, what's going to happen to grandpa? As a matter of fact, what's going to happen to Moses and Joshua and David and so on? List whoever you want to list. And so you can imagine that there would have been this deep concern amongst the people for those Old Testament saints that lived prior to the incarnation and the coming of Christ. And so here's a little foretaste of what's to come. Quickly turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 39. We read, And all these talking about all those who had faith under the old covenant, and all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. And what the writer's communicating here is that within the economy of God, there was this period of time where the saints under that old covenant didn't receive what they were promised, but rather they had to wait and look forward to a time so that we might all receive that promise together. Another way to put it, those who lived and were called under the old covenant were ultimately called and saved under the new. Meaning the elect of God whether they lived pre-crucifixion or post-crucifixion, are promised to receive their inheritance because the ultimate sacrificial death had occurred for the redemption of even those who lived in sin under that old covenant. Now there's an answer for us here, isn't there? One of the most common questions that I'm asked, and I'm sure many of you have been asked this same question as well, but the question goes like this. How were the people in the Old Testament saved? Pretty sure many of you heard, heard this before. How were the people in the Old Testament saved? How in the world were those who lived pre-cross saved if Jesus had yet to come? And we find our answer right here in verse 15. That a death occurred 
that even took care of those, as he writes, that took care of those transgressions committed under the first covenant. Now let me try to simplify this through a demonstration because we have to understand this. It's a crucial thing to understand. If we were to gather a group of Christians in one room, and if we were to ask the question, what was going on there in that temple or that tabernacle when the animals were sacrificed? What exactly was going on inside the holy place and the holy of holies when the blood was sprinkled upon that altar and upon the mercy seat? What was going on there? If we were to ask this question, I think and I believe that the average Christian would reflexively say that it was about God forgiving the sins of his people, specifically the the Israelites. Now, if that was a true or false question, I think we would all have to say that that's true. It's true. Because it isn't false, but at the same time, it's not also quite right, you see. What the writer of Hebrews is trying to communicate to us here on what is going on and what happened in that old system and tabernacle was that God was demonstrating the forgiveness of sin. There's a very crucial distinction here. Because if those Israelites who brought those sacrifices, the animals to be slain, if those animals were really at that moment forgiving their sins through that sacrifice, then what need was there for Christ to come? That would only make the necessity of Christ's sacrifice unnecessary and redundant at best. What's the point here? The writer's point is this, that the blood of Christ is the only grounds for forgiveness. Pre-cross, post-cross. The sacrifices of old was what God accepted to demonstrate the costliness of the forgiveness of sins and to withhold back His wrath. To ultimately demonstrate that it's in Christ and in Christ alone that we're to be saved. And so in verse 15, the writer presents that it's in Jesus' act of supreme obedience that he died in our place in order, in order to bear the covenant curse and to secure, as the mediator, the covenant blessing. Jesus died in order that those who are called by God, even under the old, and those who are called under the new, might receive the promised inheritance together. And it's these two ideas of death and inheritance that the writer then goes on to further develop. Notice what he says in verse 16. Read with me here. For where there is a testament, or where a will is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament, or a will, is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Now, it's going to get more technical here. It's been very technical so far in chapter 9, but it's going to get more technical here because we have to get into the Greek and Hebrew here to really grasp what the writer is trying to communicate. Try to follow along to the best of your abilities here. So here we go. 
The word that we find used here in verse 15, for the word covenant is the Greek word diatheke. Diatheke. Which is the very same Greek word that we find also used in verse 16 for our translation, testament or will, unless you have the NASB where they kept it the same by translating as covenant, which I believe is wrong. But what I want you to keep in mind as we study this is that the Greek word that's used for covenant in verse 15, the atheke, is the same exact word that's used for testament or will in verse 16. The atheke, same word, but different translation. So what's going on? In the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew word for covenant is the word beri. And so when the Jews translated the Hebrew Bible into the Greek, they took their word berith, meaning covenant, and they ascribed berith to that Greek word diatheke, or rather diatheke. So in the Jewish mind, the word diatheke was correlated to their understanding of the covenant of the Old Testament, the Old Testament terms. However, in the Greek mind, the word diatheke originally referred to a legal will or testament. And so what the writer's trying to do here in verse 16 is that he's employing a play on words to make a very specific point. Again, very technical. The writer is using the Jewish understanding and usage of the word diatheke and the original Greek use of diatheke, and he's combining those two worlds together to make a very specific point, which is this. That the new covenant is a will, that the new covenant is a testament. In other words, in light of the two ideas presented in verse 15 of death and inheritance, in the play on words of diatheke to communicate the two meanings of covenant and will, all of this serves as an analogy on how those who are called by God receive their inheritance. Theologian Simon J. Kistemacher, I think he puts it best. He helpfully puts it like this. He writes, in the original Greek, one word, diatheke, it serves the purpose of conveying the concepts covenant and will or testament. In verse 15, the context is a religious setting and the words mean covenant. The author speaks of the new covenant of which Christ is the mediator and of the first covenant which by implication has been superseded. But in the next two verses, verses 16 and 17, the writer switches from the religious setting to a legal framework. Now he introduces the concept of a last will. A lawyer draws up a will for a client who apportions his belongings to various people and agencies but this last will becomes valid only upon the death of the person who made it. So while the person is living, the will is nothing but a document. And hence, in verse 15, the reason why we read of the necessity of death, if you look at verse 17, we read, for a testament or a will is in force after men are what? Dead. Since it has no power at all while the testator lives. So the writer's explaining to us not only how it's through the death of Christ that the called receive their inheritance, 
But he's emphasizing here the necessity of his death. Jesus had to die for that will, for that legal document of the new covenant to be ushered in and activated. You see that? And so for anyone who might think to themselves that the death of Christ was a mistake or a moment of failure, we're told here in verses 15 through 17 that it wasn't. The death of Christ was not a mistake, but rather it was a requirement of Salvation, for salvation. Jesus' crucifixion wasn't a moment of weakness, but one of glorious victory, and that to secure for the Christians eternal inheritance. And friends, if you've ever wondered why, as I was studying this, this came to mind, if you've ever wondered why Jesus rebuked Peter after he shared with his disciples on how he must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, be killed and raised on the third day. Now, if you ever wondered why just Jesus rebuked Peter after he told Jesus, far be it from you, Lord, that this shall not happen to you. To which Jesus responded by saying, get behind me, Satan. Now, if you've ever wondered why that was, why that was Jesus' response to Peter, is because Jesus was in turn trying to tell Peter You have to understand here that my blood is the requirement here. You need my blood to be saved, Peter. I need to make my way to the cross to be crucified, hanging there, killed, so that you might inherit those promises given to you. He was trying to tell Peter, I need to die so that you might live. Many years ago, while I was sitting around and I was practicing my guitar, preparing for worship for Sunday, I remember a dear nephew of mine, he was there sitting there with me on the couch. And uh, he was there, he was quietly listening, he was staring at me, he was staring at my guitars. And after I finished preparing and jotting down my notes, and while I was packing away all my stuff and packing away my guitars, I remember he finally looked up to me and he spoke up and he said this. He said, Uncle MJ, can I keep your guitars when you die? But that's the fundamental understanding that the writer's providing here, isn't it? That you won't inherit anything as long as the one who owns that thing, whatever it is, is alive. That it's upon the death of the testator that the inheritance is then given. So again, what is the writer doing here? Well, he's simply demonstrating that through the use of an analogy from ordinary life, that a will, an inheritance, it demands death. Someone has to die. The only way for those who are in Christ are to ever receive their promised inheritance, to receive salvation, forgiveness, is by His death. There's no other way to usher in the new. And there's no other way for sinners to be saved without the death of Christ. And this is the very point of His illustration. The very point of this whole passage 
And he further reiterates this by going back to the first covenant. Notice the way this works out. Look down with, verse, with, with me at verse 18, and let's read this together, together again. <clears throat> verse 18, Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood or without death. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scar scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. The writer turns around and he moves from ordinary life back to the first covenant context stating that even the Old Covenant was validated or ratified through blood. Now again, what the writer is doing here for us is painting a picture of what the tabernacle truly looked like. More often than not, whenever we think about the tabernacle or whenever we think about the priesthood, many of us tend to have this romanticized idea, a pristine image of what the tabernacle actually looked like. And this is perhaps due to uh, pictures or renderings that we've seen in Bible studies or seen in our study Bibles growing up. But if we actually consider what's being described here in verses 19 through 21, which is a reference to Exodus 24 and the ratification of the Old Covenant, which was given to Moses, we quickly recognize that just about everything there was drenched with blood. All the furniture and all the vestments, all the utensils, even all the people serving, the whole scene of the tabernacle would, would have been one terrible bloody mess. And not only was everything covered in blood, but the smell of that place would have been nearly impossible or unbear unbearable rather as layers upon layers of blood would, been, would have been crusted upon one another. And as the audience listened to these words, I'm sure that it would have been to them immediately. It would have brought back into their minds the picture of that tabernacle scene. Able to imagine the tabernacle and even the smell, that iron scent that was so distinct to them. In verse 22 we read, And according to the law, almost all things are purified or cleansed with blood. Now what's interesting here about this verse, and I don't know if you caught it or not, is that the blood which stains, the blood that smells, was required by the law as the agent to be used to purify or cleanse. Now the Israelites, they weren't naive. They actually didn't believe that blood was a good cleaning agent. It's not like they used blood in their daily lives to physically clean their things. But the general idea presented here was that the widespread and corrupting and defiling nature of sin couldn't be ignored by God. Sin had to be cleansed. Sin had to be dealt with by blood. And so this bloody and gruesome scene of that old covenant tabernacle was to serve to the people of God as a clear reminder to the people year after year and to all those first century Jewish Christians who were familiar with the customs there that sin had a defiled 
or that sin had defiled almost everything. It affected every aspect of life. And because sin had defiled everything, blood and death was the requirement. And he stamps this truth with a final seal with these words at the end of verse 22, which serves as the very principle of this whole passage, he writes, without shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of sin. This to simply say, remission of sins doesn't exist apart from the shedding of blood. It can never be mutually exclusive. There is no such thing as atonement without death. Now with all of this talk about blood, it might seem to some of you as barbaric. It might sound to some of you antiquated or something that old-time pagan people used to participate in. But we find here clearly in God's Word that atonement must be made, and that by shedding blood. And this is what underscores the whole idea here, does it not? Life has to be forfeited through the death of God, or rather through the death of Jesus for God to forgive. Life must be surrendered through the death of Christ if God is to forgive sin. Scottish theologian Oswald Chambers, he puts it like this. He puts it beautifully. He says, We trample the blood of the Son of God if we think we are forgiven because we are sorry for our sins. The only explanation for the forgiveness of God and for the unfathomable unfathomable depth of his forgetting is the death of Jesus Christ. Our repentance is merely the outcome of our personal realization of the atonement which he has worked out for us. It does not matter who or what we are. There is absolute reinstatement into God by the death of Jesus Christ and by no other way. Not because Jesus Christ pleads, but because he died. It is not earned, but accepted. All the pleading which deliberately refuses to recognize the cross is of no avail. It is battering at the door other than the one that Jesus has opened. Our Lord does not pretend we are all right when we are all wrong. The atonement is a propitiation whereby God, through the death of Jesus, makes an and a holy man, holy. You see, the writer, he's saying that there's no forgiveness without the blood. He wants you to know, and he wants you to make that immediate connection between that principle expounded in the law and directly connect that to the death of Christ. He wants for you to see the clear implication that forgiveness can only come through the atoning work of Jesus. And without his atoning work, without his sacrificial death, you will never be forgiven. Forgiveness ceases to exist. Friends, and I was so encouraged by this through the interview process of some of those going through membership. 
But this is why whenever we preach and deliver and share the gospel message, we must never discount nor exclude the death of Christ. As the life of Christ is to our righteousness, His resurrection, our justification, it's for us to know that it's in the death of the Son where we find our forgiveness. What started out as a very complicated and technical passage we end with a very brief and concise statement that ends up being, as it were, the very heart of the gospel message itself, does it not? Without the death and the bloodshedding of Jesus, there exists no atonement for sin. And it's because of this death, it's because of this death, we sing. And it's because of this death, we sing and must continue to sing at this church about that blood that forgives. And we sing not because we're superstitious about what blood can do and what it means, but because the blood of Christ is the synonym for that violent and sacrificial death of Jesus on our behalf. It's through the shedding of His blood that our sins are washed away. Apostle Peter, he puts it like this in 1 Peter 1.18. Knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, and he writes this, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Brothers and sisters, we must never forget that it's in the blood that we find forgiveness. It's so simple. That's the main message. That's the main point of this whole message. That's the thesis. We find at the very heart of the gospel message, the blood of Christ shed on our behalf. And as we consider all of these things, it should come to no surprise for any of us here that on the night on which Jesus was betrayed, that he would then take up that cup and use the very language that we find here in Hebrews 9 when he says, this is the new covenant in what? In my blood. In my blood. Pillar Baptist Church, may none of us, none of us, ever think ourselves too sophisticated to sing about the blood. Never to religiously advance that we can't rejoice in His blood. Just like a will in our legal system requires a death for inheritance. Just like the old covenant required blood to ratify the covenant to bring forth that forgiveness. So too the new covenant is based on the shedding of blood. The sacrificial death of the mediator through which we can have redemption through which we can obtain an eternal inheritance and the forgiveness of our defilement, of our sin. Sin had left a crimson stain. All those deeds and all those words that spewed out of our mouths, all those things that you've done and you looked at that haunts you, all those things that you've thought of that defile you, all those stains that stack up one upon another upon your souls. And it's here, it's here what you need to know this evening is this, that though sin had left a crimson stain, 
by His blood. But His blood, He washed it white as snow. Friends, in Christ, God says you can be clean. Every sin wiped away, every foul deed purified, every iniquity forgiven, it's through the blood of His Son that you can be pardoned. Now, what better news can we all hear day after day than that? Unbelievers who are with us tonight, you must know that God cannot simply forgive you of your sins as much as you want to plead. And that because God is holy. God is righteous and just. Every sin that you've ever committed needs to be dealt with by blood. And so you can choose this day to either deal with your sins by paying for your sins with your own blood, or you can deal with your sins by, be, by hiding behind a far superior and powerful blood in Christ. It's in His death where one is washed, cleansed, pardoned, counted as an heir, part of the eternal inheritance. Not only forgiveness now, but a future hope of glory. And you might be thinking to yourself, I want that. I want that. I need that. How can I get that? Tell me how in the world can I obtain that? The answer is this, bank your hope in Jesus Christ. Romans 10.13, Paul writes, Call upon the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. Call upon Him who atoned for sin with His blood. Put your faith in Him and bow the knee to Him and follow Him at once in obedience. And it's only then that you'll find yourself at that very moment as we often sing here, that you'll be able to find yourself singing, as we'll sing in a few moments, I believe, these words. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there have I, though vile as he, washed all my sins away. Dear unbelieving friends, the Lord promises you this day the greatest of news. Would you not accept His kind offer? Would you not accept His blood? If you would but come to Jesus, you will be cleansed. The reason being that there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's vein. And sinners plunged beneath that flood will lose all their guilt and stain. Let's pray together. O oh Lord, we come confessing that our sins have left upon each and every one of our souls a deep and crimson stain. Sins rising from a stony and proud and self-righteous heart. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us grace so that we might know more and more of our need for that very grace. Help us to recognize that we need healing and we need forgiveness healing and forgiveness that can only be found in the blood of the Lamb who is your Son. 
Though our sins are great and many, may we never forget that you are adequate for our relief, rich and abundant in mercy, and the blood of Christ, the sole means by which we can be forgiven. Oh, we pray all these things that we would come to you at once. We lift these things up to the glory of God the Father. By the blood of the Son and by the power of the Spirit, three persons and one God, now and forevermore. Amen.